Blog Talk Radio. me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. 
objectivist pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father Brother Anthony, bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Haki Kamati Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and I'm interested in institution building. Um, you know, as I look around and uh, I see the kind of, um, for lack of a better term, crazy changes that are taking place in society, uh, one thing we is indisputable, and that is that the impact that is going to have, the negative impact it's going to have on African people is assured. Now, clearly, uh, the impact is going to impact on all people, irrespective of ethnicity. But it's going to particularly impact on African people. And I say that because you have a, 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 a commander-in-chief, a deranged orange individual who has no respect for life, and particularly has no li- respect for life when it comes to people of color. So clearly, everything he can do, uh, everything possible, he's going to do in terms of undermining the longevity of the interests of African people. So therefore, we got some choices to make in terms of our own survival in the society. We got to decide: Are we going to stand up and organize? Are we going to be complicitous in our own demise? Or precisely, what are we going to do in terms of uh, confronting the uh, reality that we are confronted with? So I said to say that uh, we need to um, pay attention to what's going on. Get serious, because this is very, very serious. And brother Africa, I want to thank you for having me on the show. Thank you, brother Haki. Father, brother Haki, we now bring in. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. Peace, everybody. It's Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program. It's always an honor and privilege to participate. Thank you, Jabari. Father Jabari, we bring you Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert A. Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class in my high school years back in 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. Welcome, panelists. Uh, what we'd like to do at this point in time is start off the segment, what's going on in your world and the community. we start with Brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, you know, often we talk about the desperation of those of this system. and uh, We talk about the willingness of those in power to do almost anything uh, at the expense of humanity in terms of maintaining power and control of the world. The most recent example is they have, they're, they're contemplating on actually doubling the speed of the Internet from 5G to 10G. And according to them, they're doing this because they want to counter China's uh, growing complexity in terms of the ability to innovate uh, you know, network infrastructure. And so they figured by increasing the speed, uh, they can better compete with, with China in terms of doing things from a network point of view. But the problem is that in order to create you know, 10G uh, speed on your Internet. The problem is that it's going to proliferate in terms of the amount of, uh, the amount of radiation that people are subjected to. And most scientists are already talking about the fact that if you do that, that it's going to have a devastating impact in terms of the cancer rates among the citizenry. Now, what they're talking about is actually putting up, you know, these cellular towers 
on on light posts. So we know light posts are in proximity to where people live. And so, therefore, when you talk about this increase in radiation, then one thing scientists agree upon is that it's going to increase cancer. So the mere fact that they don't care about the proliferation of, uh, of cancer in the society and to actually innovate technology that's going to foment more and more cancer speaks values in terms of the lack of respect they have for human life. So if we don't get it in the political realm in terms of how just insane uh, the society is, then perhaps we can understand that any time someone innovates in, you know, a technology which is, which is devastating uh, to human beings, the medicine system needs to be held in check. So, again, you know, this is insane, but people got to understand this is precisely what's going on, and this is how crazy it is and how insane uh, the system is. Thank you, Brother Hockey, Father Brother Hockey, Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Um, around, uh, around my way, uh, there's going to be a, a high-level Cuban delegation visiting uh, uh, in New York, visiting New York for the U.N. General Assembly meeting coming up later on this fall. And they will be appearing at the Riverside Church in New York City on September 26th of this year in order to give an update on the situation going on in Cuba. So if anybody is in the vicinity of New York and uh, they may be interested, um, uh, let's see, uh, definitely try to check it out. It's an invitation-only event uh, because Riverside Church only holds uh, some. But you can get in touch with IFCO Pastors for Peace for more information. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we bring in Brother Jabari. What's going on in your world and the community? Um, one thing that I found of particular interest was an article I read where there were a number of um, technology officials that issued a statement warning against drone use. Now, it's very interesting. Those that are experts um, in the field of science would make such a statement given that, as we know, they're constantly trying to find ways to innovate and create new ways to use drones to impact every facet of our being. So it's interesting you have, on one hand, big businesses, it's okay for this to happen, but those who know the true ramification of what drones can do is issue a statement saying we need to reconsider that. All right. Thank you, Jabari. Father Jabari, Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Um, the National Network on Cuba is having this fall meeting and conference, this annual meeting, on October the 20th through 21st, 2018, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, this will be a interesting meeting discussing Cuba. And uh, uh, there's a number of call, it's a coalition of groups, and it will be an interesting meeting. For further information, you can. You can check out the web page at nnoc.info, or you can call the phone number 617-254-9070. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. I would like to just make a reminder to those who are not well of the sickness of our sister Ramona Africa. 
uh, how you can support her, a statement from the MOVE organization, is informing our supporters, sympathizers, and all those in solidarity with the cause of revolution that Ramona Africa, MOVE's Minister of Communication, survivor of the May 13, 1985, Holocaust has been hospitalized as a result of uh, health complications coming from a condition called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. A direct result of the ongoing war wage on our move family. By this government, we lost 24 members to date, to this date. Two died in prison under suspicious circumstances termed cancer. Now Ramona is diagnosed with cancer, and she is again, she again is battling to be a survivor. If there are any questions or concerns people want to address, please contact Alberta Africa or Sue Africa at 215-387-4107 or you can email them at helpremonaafrica at gmail.com. So again, if you want to support our brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, we want to support Sister Ramona, who has been a freedom fighter for our people. Please do so. She will need to help her with her hospital, hospital um, expenses. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the call. When we come back, we'll continue the section on what's going on in our community, uh, what's going on in our world in the community. And I will ask the panelists, there was a couple um events that took place the past week or so. And I would just like to give y'all a general response. The first response would be to recently the sister who started the whole Flint investigation around the water issue. She was mysteriously found dead in her home. And the second incident is recently in Brazil, the National Museum was burned up. And they lost all of this historical treasure, values of historical artifacts, has gone up in smoke. I'd like to have a discussion on those two incidents when we return. So we're going to pause for the call, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. Black man, 
So don't you where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African That's right No matter where you come from As long as you're a black man or woman You are African Everybody else knows this Even if you don't So don't you forget that Again, we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move as your host, Brother Africa. We're going to be in the seat. We're going to take the heat. When when we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We're going to speak truth to power, and like always, we're going to try to provide you with information so you can use it as a tool for liberation. So let's continue the discussion on the segment, what's going on in your world and community. Panelists, there are sometimes incidents or things you come in contact with or find out about and make you go, hmm. It just make you wonder. Now, just given the basic general knowledge of you have on life in general, I would like to get each one of y'all a response um, to this situation. Recently, um, it was shared with me, and it was published that um, that the young lady who initially um, started the ball rolling in terms of the crisis in Flint, Michigan, dealing with the water situation. She recently found dead. Mister, you know, you know, some kind of way they found her, found her dead in, in her home. And ain't nobody really sure how she died. Uh, given the nature of what's been going on with Flint, and so recently in her of her um, death, what do y'all make of that? Is it just a coincidence at this point in time she came up mysteriously dead, or do y'all think some something else? Could be be in play in terms of her death. Stop you, brother Anthony. I'm just curious. What do you think? Okay, is this the same sister that's mentioned in that article that uh, Haki sent out about the, the the crisis in Flint about Veolia or or water company trying to get a contract in Lagos, Nigeria? I'm not Nigeria? quite sure. Is that it's the same sister, Anthony. I'm not sure. I can't verify that right off the head, but I'll double check it. No, yeah, no, I was just curious because um, uh, the, the sister quoted in that article was very critical of Veolia, uh, which is um, a multinational firm based in France. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, also, I think uh, Flint's been suffering from this for, uh, for, for some years now. And uh, so, uh, so in addition to um, you know the, uh, 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 the 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 lead poisoning of the youth, it might also affect other sensitive populations. But uh, the timing sounds somewhat suspicious. I th- think there may be other forces at work uh, because um, there were some activist organizations. I think called Flint Rising that was highly critical of Veolia seeking a contract to, to manage the water supply in Lagos, Nigeria. And uh, and a lot of concern that they might do the same thing in Lagos that uh, that, that happened in, in Flint. That is happening in Flint, except on a larger scale, because you're talking about a lot more people living in Lagos than in Flint. Brother Haki, your just gut feeling, initial reaction to just what I just sh- shared with y'all. Yeah, well, I I I thought it was so suspect. Um, you know, one of the things is that you know, one of the things is she's been successful in terms of being actually able 
to get a lot of people to pay attention, not only, you know, in Michigan, but throughout the country in terms of the real atrocity that took place with respect to the water. So I think she did a very good job in terms of laying out the systemic problem um, when we talk about these kinds of violations. So I think in that context, I think she represented a legitimate threat to the powers that be. Uh, now that they have indicted 12 people and, uh, and, um, and, um, in, in, the, in, in the Flint, Michigan, I'm quite sure that the position was that, you know, that eliminating her would be one less person to actually testify in terms of the kind of conspiracy that took place that allowed this incident to take place in the Flint, Michigan, when the water was poisoned. Also, I think that it, it does sound very, very suspicious, and I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, uh, you know, in general, we find out that, in fact, that, uh, that, that some um, U.S. representative was behind or some organization in the U.S. Uh, intelligence community was behind her death, her very suspicious death. So I'm not surprised at all. I think, given the point in the history that we're at, that we can anticipate that anybody who can um, uh, engender uh, or, or articulate the, the message in a way in which people find it palatable, I think they're in real, real trouble. So I think that the sister, a virtue of being in a position to actually get people to actually think about this thing, um, you know, sort of led to you know, her demise. So I think that we shouldn't be surprised if we find down the road that government officials were somehow implicated in terms of what happened to her. Brother Javari? I would agree that it seems suspect because if you notice, within regards to that region, when people bring attention to certain injustices, there seem to be certain consequences that happen because, remember, it was Reverend Pinkney in that same area that talked about what the utilities were doing, and just by virtue of him doing nonviolent protesting, he was sent to prison. So I found find it um, questionable that somebody exposed the dubious activity of a large corporate entity, and then all of a sudden their existence is impacted negatively. Brother Moses. Well, we know that in the southern hemisphere, in Latin America, et cetera, that there's us, they're always killing people who are, who are coming out, uh, you know, for the environment and uh, and for indigenous people. And uh, so, you know, this imperialism has, has no bounds. Uh, I would not be shocked if, if to find out that there was someone behind her death, uh, I don't know at this point what to believe because I, I don't have enough information. So I'm going to withhold my comment. Thank you. Okay, panelists, let's move on to this, this, this other issue. Recently this week, this past week in Brazil, there was a major uh, fire that took place in Brazil and it burned down their national museum that had all the major artifacts, historical artifacts in that particular museum. And it would seem to me if it's a national museum with that kind of treasure of artifacts, it would seem like we're being more than um more than well protected against any so called, you know, climate fire. It's my understanding it had no kind of protection at all, given been in existence for over two hundred some years. Uh would y'all make up this this so called incident? Is this just an incident or is Maybe more to that, given the, the, the dynamics of what's taking place, particularly as it relates to history of people of color. So I'll start with you, Hacky. You start us off with this one. What you suspect? Well, 
Yeah, the mere, the mere fact that you know, that 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 museum went up in flames that held so many important relics, particularly with respect to history. Uh, one of the things that uh, so and so important is that we have a firm understanding in terms of history. Uh, then you do to be deceived by those who have an interest in making sure that you don't understand uh, the flow of history. And one of the things I think is very extremely relevant when you talk about the origin of human beings, you can't talk about the origin of human beings without talking about Africa. So I find it ironic or very strange that, in fact, that, you know, that these relics throughout the world tend to point to reality. When you talk about the origin of human beings, you go right back to Africa. So I think clearly those musicians of power in the West have a compelling interest to ensure that people don't have an interest or understanding in terms of what's going on with respect to history. I'm often reminded of the fact in, in, in Iraq, when the first things they did, aside from you know, bombing Iraq to oblivion, uh, a lot of the, 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 uh, the remnants, a lot of the relics that, that existed in those museums were destroyed or stolen. So it's very, very clear that there is a kind of um, um, most operandi which says that you know, that denying people the history is very, very important. In fact, one of the things that we understand that when we look at there's a book entitled Historians Against History, one of the things that Western leaders historically always agreed upon that we must destroy African history. So I think it's sort of continuation of the destruction of African history in order to make it possible for the leaders, Western leadership, to then in turn reinterpret history and to give it that, that, that Western and European flavor. So I think clearly this this all these relics going up into flame didn't make any sense at all, simply because they're so valuable, not only, you know, to Brazilians, but also but throughout the world. And the mere fact that they were they were allowed to be destroyed like that and seemed like a sort of haphazard response from the, from the fire department, it seems to me it strikes me as somehow conspiratorial. So, you know, I, I, I'm i really suspicious in terms of particular fire. In particular, we talk about a museum which is so important historically. So I, I am very, very suspicious in terms of this this whole this whole uh, dynamic. Brother Moses. Yes, well, it certainly was a tragedy that this museum. I mean, it burned completely down, which is amazing to me that this bigger building, you know, they, they didn't have any kind of protection, or or the fire department wasn't able to get there. And, Time or so it's very very disheartening uh, uh, to think that that so much culture and uh, historical relics could could just be completely wiped out uh, and this is a tragedy. Uh, I don't know uh, I don't know why uh, this, this happened. Uh, um, it's very very suspicious though. I mean in terms of culture and uh, and historical relics being wiped out being showing the history of Africa and and the people of the world and uh it's a very it's a loss. It's a it's a loss. Uh I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Uh to Bobby, you'll check on this. Are you with us, Bobby? If not, you know, oh, lost Bobby. Can you hear me now? Excuse me. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Go ahead, give please. Me the kind of inf- give me the kind of information that was in the museum. One has to question what type of rewriting of history is in place. Because you're talking about a museum, as I read about it, a museum that often 
gave very good insights in terms of the African presence in Brazil, African contributions to the world. And we know, and especially when we look at textbooks on the Western side, we always know they're finding ways to rewrite or retract or take out certain information that really sheds light on just how important we are in terms of the world being what it is. So it just makes you wonder what kind of agenda is at play that more wasn't done to prevent um, a knowledge resource from being destroyed like this. And apparently, let me add one more issue for y'all to um, give y'all opinion to, and then we'll move into our tonight theme, which is part two, This is America. Recently, a report on the news, I believe, if someone can correct me, that there was a police officer who thought in Dallas who thought that they um, was going into their own apartment, but he ran into the wrong apartment when it was the next door and ended up killing uh, the resident of that particular apartment ended up killing this, I believe it was a young lady. And they, uh, you know, attempted to charge him with murder. What do y'all make of that incident? How do you make such a gross error of not knowing that you're in your own apartment to end up killing that person who who has been your next-door neighbor? I think Is it more, it is it more like something to that story? I think there's something more to it. I think what it is, I think it reflects the low value that African life has in this society. Uh, you know, and the fact that the police tend to resort to deadly force so quickly in these situations, and it's almost always shoot to kill. They don't shoot to maim or disable the person. They shoot to kill the person. And uh, this should be a wake-up call that our situation is getting very precarious uh, in this society. I mean, when they can't make money off of us or use us as cheap labor, it seems as if African life becomes expendable. And, uh, and, uh, and and we need to be more aware of that, and we need uh, to pay attention to what's going on around us and around the world and pay greater attention uh, uh, to our needs and interests and get organized. And in terms of the fire at the museum in Brazil, I think it's a reflection of a cultural offensive against the African population. And uh, this has been going on for hundreds of years, but as Africans have become more educated and and better able to travel on their own, they're starting to discover things uh, that the enemy, that our class and, and ethnic enemies don't want us to know. And I think that's, uh, I, I think that's a factor in why the museum was not more adequately protected than it was. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Haki, what you make of the situation, Dallas, by the police officer? I, I thought the story was somewhat, <clears throat> was somewhat suspect. <clears throat> and, you know, the thing is that for them to acknowledge that the police woman actually, you know, went to the wrong apartment and ended up killing an innocent man in his own home, uh, it seems to me that it's not the kind of narrative you want to put out there in terms of the police department. 
Because one of the things when you talk about police hiring practices, one of the things is they got a long history of not hiring their brightest people. And so, therefore, to say that someone was so not, was so somewhat um, distraught or whatever they were, that they went into a wrong apartment and ended up killing an innocent person, I don't think it's the kind of narrative they really want to get out there. So I suspect that there's, there's something else that happened in which they're really concealing. And the question is whether or not they're going to indict her for murder. My guess is probably not. Maybe they get a, maybe for some child like manslaughter or, or something, or they'll say she was defending herself, or it's some, something they're going to come up with, some rationale. They're going to come up to justify the shooting. But clearly, uh, you know, this, the, the lack of respect for African lives is, is, a, is a big part, a big part of this. So, you know, when they, so when they said that, you know, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really surprised because there's nothing they won't do uh, to African people. And so, I'm, I'm, to be quite frank, um, I'm not really surprised that occurred. I'm just hoping that the people in, uh, in Texas, uh, you, know, uh, you know, wake up to the reality. Or well, well, the people throughout America wake up to the reality in terms of police brutality and understand that we're all in peril, you know, by police actions. All right. Brother Zabari, your take on this. It's unfortunate that you heard some individuals that are so wired that they don't try to find the most um, reasonable way to de-escalate tension, but they go for the extreme, and clearly that's what we're dealing with here. This is a time of extremes, and this is indicative of first response. And Moses? Yes. Let me, let me get the facts right now. This was a, a white woman police officer. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, she went into the wrong house, the next door neighbor house. Thank you. Mm-hmm. She was at her own. Yeah, house. I heard. I heard. I heard some news about about it, but I didn't get. They didn't break down the uh, the racial aspects of it. That it was a a black owner, a resident. Yes, she went uh-huh. into yeah. her next neighbor house. Thank you. Was her apartment. And she mm-hmm. assumed that it was, she was and in her so own apartment. Uh, it makes it's me wonder why, why she was so impaired or whatever her, her situation was that she didn't know she was not in her own apartment. I mean, that's that's a problem in itself. Uh, uh, and then they actually end up killing the person. I mean, that is special. I mean, uh, so, I, I mean, it's a max of, you know, some kind of racism uh, Involved in it, and uh, and you know, uh, devaluing uh, black lives, and uh, and uh, I, it's just it's just horrendous. It's just absolutely amazing that that it happened. Uh, uh, and I'm wondering what will they charge her with? Uh, uh, um, I'm going to try to keep up with this story. Thank you. All right, panel, job we're done. Well, right now, I'm going to do a pause for the cause. When we come back, we're going to start with part two, This in America. We're going to start off with what is the relationship between the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and possibly in Africa or to Africa? In this particular case, we're going to talk about Nigeria. So we're going to have that discussion coming up. For our listening audience, if you'd like to call in and share your views and comments, please do so. You are welcome. You can call 323 679 
0841 hit one, and we can acknowledge. We will acknowledge your last four numbers. So right now we're gonna pause for this cause. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the relationship, the positive relationship, of what taking place in Flint, Michigan, and how it may relate to what may take place in Africa, more particularly the country of Nigeria and others. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Of 
Flint, Michigan, and how it may, relates to Africa. In this case, we more particularly talk about Nigeria. There was an interest article that was written from Home World News and also republished in RT News, um, and was done on the 10th of August 2018. And it talks about it talks about the company that was responsible for dealing with the crisis, the water crisis in Flint. That that country is one of the three countries that is being considered or maybe managing the water, public water um, um, system in Nigeria. Now, a lot of times when you look at how decisions are made, who get contracts, and why they get these things, they're all political, and they do have ramifications. But when I read this article, I mean, there are so many issues that come to mind in terms of this possibility of the same company that has created this 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 um crisis in Flint may be also the same crisis that African people are willing to invite them into their home to manage their public water system. Panelists, when you read this article, there are so many issues I think it addressed just by the nature of even considering not only that company and it's a part of, I believe, it's a company out of France, but also they consider a company out of Spain, a company out of Dabu, Dabu um, out of Saudi Arabia, Dabu, uh, I can't pronounce it, pronounce the word for me. Um, Dubai, Dubai. Dubai, yeah, Dubai. Excuse me. You know, you have three foreign com- companies where you are considering to bring it to your home to deal with one of the most important natural infrastructure. We're talking about the water system. So, panelists, when you read this article, just talk in general of some of the dynamics that came to play in terms of the, 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 the shortcomings and the danger of this type of decision. So, how would you, Brother Hakeem? Well, you know, recently a brother came out with a video <clears throat> called This is Nigeria, and he says, this is Nigeria. Everyone is criminal. <laughs> so, one of the problems is that, you know, throughout Africa, uh, they have these informal channels that exist in terms of facilitating business. And unfortunately, these, these business arrangements are made under the table, which means that the corruption is so rampant. And when we talk about corruption, rampant, corruption is particularly rampant when it comes to Nigeria. We're talking about the capital city of Lagos. So the corruption is very, very strong. And so, therefore, the needs or the aspirations or the concerns of the masses of people in Nigeria, I can assure you, would not be an interest of those for making these deals with uh, Biola, uh, the water company out of Flint, Michigan. Uh, the mere fact that the Nigerian officials would even entertain the idea of uh, allowing Biola to come into the country to set up after what it did in Flint, Michigan, where they actually gave, they, they made it possible for people to consume water that was 20 times the, the legal limit uh, for, for chemicals. So and and we all understood the kind of the kind of uh, lead uh, poison that damaged the minds of so many of those young children in Flint, Michigan. So for Nigeria to actually even entertain the idea of bringing them to Nigeria speaks to a kind of corruption uh, that exists, you know, in in Nigeria. Um, you know, um, South Africa, brother Africa, ain't, ain't much you can say. Um, the thing is that when you talk about these public-private uh, partnerships. Uh, one of the things is that when you tell something as important as water, one of the things that you want to do is you, you, you want to safeguard that, that resource to the maximum extent possible, which means that it's a public resource, which means that public control over it 
to ensure that everything goes smoothly because it's so valuable. Anytime you involve partnerships, then you're talking about maximizing profit. My concern is that Viola's attempt to maximize profit at the expense of the Lagos people is, is probably going to happen if, in fact, they get that bid because it's all about the money. So what they did in St. Michigan was to maximize saving by switching the water source from, from water that was clean to the most, most polluted river in the, in the city for the sole purpose of, of saving, you know, making money, making profit. So I'm concerned that this private partnership in Nigeria, in Lagos particularly, is going to manifest itself if, in fact, they get this, this contract. I'm hoping that um, wiser heads prevail, uh, that the uh, GMOs in, in Lagos uh, can prevail among massive people to, to stand up and to, to strongly demand that the Veolia, Veolia doesn't get this contract for something as precious as water. You know, Brother Anthony, in terms of these choices that they narrow down to three companies, all these companies has all these companies have a history of having some kind of um, issue with mismanaging mm-hmm. um, that the, the, the people resources. Two of the other companies, one of them would be tied to the pipeline, South Dakota. The issue they caused with South Dakota, and the other one, I think, has the issue uh, with the people down in the country of Bolivia. So just to even narrow down the three, these three companies that don't have a good history of protecting the interests and resources of the indigenous people, you have to definitely ask yourself what's going on in terms of these choices. But what's your take on this article, Brother brother Anthony? Yeah, I, w- I have that same concern. And another issue I would raise also is that um, – is the fact that they have to look outside of Africa in order to address uh, this concern, which uh, which indicates, uh, you know, how badly Pan-Africanism is needed. And the fact that, uh, that, that within Nigeria itself, it, the resources to be able to manage I mean, it's very, it's very telling, and it speaks to the fact that because of uh, corruption, miseducation, and uh, disorganization, uh, uh, we uh, do not have among ourselves that ability to manage a public uh, uh, something as vital as our water supply. And uh, and uh, and part of that is a consequence of the rapid growth of Lagos over the over the past several decades, and uh, and that uh, reflects the extreme uneven development between the countryside and urban areas as a consequence of of uh, neocolonialism and cap. So those were some of the issues that came to mind. And the fact that they're considering privatizing uh, to corporations that have a very bad history in terms of, um, you know, their treatment of the indigenous people where they operate. It is uh, real crazy, Jabari. It's uh, real crazy. What you make of it, Jabari? Yeah, um... In regards to this kind of transaction taking place, it's not surprising given that when it comes to its um, fiscal policy, 
Nigeria has often been friendly to Western interests. And when you look at the nature of what's going on, they already say that the children already have issues with the water there. It really makes you think what kind of colonialization will be in in the works in regards to Nigeria. Because one thing we've got to understand, when Western companies get a hold of areas they have where water is important to the economics, everything changed. We've seen it happen in New Orleans, how that community has changed. So you got to understand that water is big business, and that's why this company is trying to get over there. And when they get over there, they're going to create a permanent influence. They're not going over there just for the short term. They're going there for the long term, unfortunately. Hello? Yeah. Oh, Brother Africa? Yeah, he, he, we've seen a loss, Brother Africa. So let's let's continue. Let's start with Brother Robert. The Legal yes, Corporation. Well, well the, uh, the Nigerian Environment and Human Rights NGOs are protesting against the privatization of the water sector, sector citing distrust of large multinational corporations and concern over government corruption. They are drawing attention to high-profile controversies surrounding Viola and the two other top bidders, Spanish company Abengoa and Dubai-based Matito. The Emirati firm is linked to the Dakota Access Pipeline, which sparks protests from Native Americans, while Abengoa's band is being caused protests and riots in Bolivia. And so we found a situation where the Flint, Michigan and the government of Michigan is in a lawsuit filed by the state of Michigan. The company is accused Viola of uh, professional negligence, fraud, and public nuisance for allegedly falsifying the studies on the town's water system and making fraudulent statements. Viola denies the allegations of wrongdoings. So we see we see these you know uh, African country you know, reaching out to a multinational corporations in order to help the situation in Africa. And and uh, the, uh, the only result can be more imperialism and more uh, devastation of, of, the, of the water system in Africa because, you know, these profit-driven companies are not going to do anything that's going to, Improve the situation, and they need they need someone who who, who will be look out for the the people themselves. And so uh, I don't Viola Viola is a, a multinational corporation. It it has uh, a a lot of uh, sections because I know in Maryland in Maryland and Prince George's County they run the bus company that's that the the, the state the county government runs a bus company that's Viola overseas and it's called the bus and uh, so this this it's a multinational corporation and uh, and uh I don't know that it's gonna be helpful in this situation with the water. Thank you. You know, let me let me ask this question with uh Brother Jabari. 
the Congressional Black Caucus wrote a letter in solidarity with the Nigerian activists, you know, decrying the you know, water privatization over in Lagos. Now, what is it about the Congressional Black Caucus that actually gave them a backbone to inspire them to actually criticize a U.S. corporation? What is that all about, Jabari? Well, you know, I would say, given how they operate, clearly there's some type of economic interest they have in mind in terms of things they want to do or maybe even things they're working on currently. Because one thing we have to understand that with the Congressional Black Caucus, they follow the money trail because they have received um, sponsorships, endorsements, and um, donations from a number of corporate interests that are not in the interest of the people that they say they represent. They represent them in terms of their name, but in terms of their actions, you know. But it is very interesting in terms of them all of a sudden doing something that will reflect um, bravery and that cowardice. So I would say clearly it's a move in regards to what's in their best interest because they followed the money trail. Brother, Brother Anthony, uh, Brother Jabari <laughs> raises a very interesting point in terms of um, one hand washing the other. Uh, do you think that's a legitimacy when we when we talk about the Congressional Black Caucus involvement and actually educating people about the uh, crimes of Veolia? Um, actually, I, I I concur with Jabari on that on that point that there's something else going on. Um, uh, they may not uh, like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Veolia for whatever sense of reasons, or it may be that they bow into political pressure. And uh, often when politicians bow to pressure, there's a lot of uh, political posturing that goes on. And, uh, and I, I think there might be other motives at work mainly because uh, almost the entire CPC is in the pocket of the uh, Dem- uh, Democratic Party. Brother Robert, privatization of the water. Um, now, what are the potential benefits in terms of privatization of water? Can there be other any benefits to privatizing water? I can't see any. I I don't know of any benefits. I mean, the water belongs to the people. It should be owned by the people, and and the government should not be uh, uh, delegating the the water's responsibility to private corporations who are profit driven in, in the first place. And so, you know, it's a contradiction. Uh, um, somehow, you're going to profit over off off a basic needs and necessities of the people. Uh, water should be a right uh, and not just a privilege, just like education and health care. And so, you know, I don't I don't see any good coming out of privatization whatsoever. I am surprised that the Congressional Black Caucus had the guts to uh, stand up to them in a letter, uh, uh, stand with the activists who, who are opposing privatization. Thank you. Uh, Brother Africa, you back? Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, I think the question raised, actually, you also I think to really look at that, that behavior of the Black Caucus. Maybe we need to look at um, where are they investing their money and who are they, who they have a relationship uh, between companies that, 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 that manage um, water affairs. For example, um, it's 
interesting. They talk, you, you know, you know, they, they, they they're speaking out in the issue about Nigeria, but it's a whole lot of issues here. I still haven't heard that one from the issues in Flint, Michigan. To be honest with you, in terms of uh, speaking out against what's, what's going on, so I wanted maybe a question of like I think y'all alluded to, uh, where, where are they connected to? They don't talk about the same issue that's going on in Haiti. Matter of fact, many of the Black Caucus members you'll find out. They are benefiting from the suffering of the people in Haiti, and they are collaborating with many of the multinational corporations that are doing business in Haiti and ripping their people off. So you know, uh, you know, it's just an illusion of um, trying to make our people think they have African people' interests at heart. When reality is, the only interest they have is their own self-interest. But I think that's an excellent point that you raise. Mm-hmm. Another final thoughts on this article before we move forward to our next article. That that deal with uh, racial and ethnic um, issues. Final thoughts, anybody? If not, panelists, let's move forward. Again, we're talking about this issue because um, this is, is, is America. What goes on here, it has a direct impact on the rest of the world. And when we talk about mortal multi uh, national companies. These companies don't only just operate here, but they operate all over the world and they everything are connected and people need need to realize this. You know, that was a real interest article and I think we really need to pay close attention to um the essence of some of the major issues that comes from this particular article. That came from um Glenn Ford from 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 Bar, dated June twenty eighth, two thousand eighteen, entitled Racial and ethnic roundup are legal as long as race is not the only reason. Now, this article raises some fundamental questions, but, but, but one of the key questions I'm going to ask at this point in time, and panelists would like y'all to respond to it. When you read this article, it seems to be stating that, historically speaking, just by the nature of bringing African people to this country, it all, 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 it, it automatically put African people in position position of being the enemy of the state, regardless of what you do or don't do. And Brother Hacky, after that, here you ask the question, the state sees us as the enemy of the state. Are we? But based on this article, it raises that same central thing. Panelists, when you look at this article, that's one of the issues that comes out for me is that are African people the enemy of the state, just by the nature of how and who we are and how we got here? Take a stab at that, Brother Anthony. Sure. It's interesting that uh, that Brother Glenn points out that uh, that uh, that that for Africans, for the slave, the whole nation was imprisoned. And every European, a, a guard was obligated to force the terms of confinement. So you have uh, you have nearly uh, you know uh, nearly three hundred years Africans have been considered an enemy of the state. If you uh, uh, concur with the argument that uh, uh, that the, that the, that the Europeans considered this their land. And unfortunately, because uh, uh, the, uh, uh, 
the the American Indians were dispersed and and uh, and decimated uh, by, uh, by by diseases and warfare, uh, they have not been able to assert their control over this land, which is rightfully theirs. And uh, and uh, this thing uh, and and uh, and uh, this is a sign that culturally speaking, especially uh, Africans are at war uh, with the uh, ruling class of this society. And all the all the policies lately point to it. And uh, the use of imprisonment as a way of keeping. Uh, you know, people under control. It uh, you know uh, pervades U.S. history, and uh, he gives an example of what happened to the Japanese during the World War II, and also those U.S. citizens who were opposed to World War II. As a matter of fact, I recall from some reading that. Um, uh, that several ma- uh, uh, members of the Nation of Islam were imprisoned in World War II also because they allegedly opposed the war. So, uh, so this is uh, this is not a new tactic. I think it's something people have to be aware of, and because of the way history is presented, a lot of us aren't aware of uh, of this aspect of uh, U.S. history. Brother Moses, what you think? You think we are just by the nature of the history of how we got here? We are just automatically put in position as being viewed as the enemy of the state? Yeah, well, you know, we were brought here in chains. I mean, it cannot be any plainer that, you know, we were brought here for a job. We were brought here to work and not to be, get resources or, or or benefit ourselves, but to be exploited, uh, it can't be any clearer. Uh, the government has never really, really reconciled itself to to the to that factor, and uh, and there's been no reparations, no no uh, apologies whatsoever, and so we are still, you know, in 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 uh, institutionalized racism. And and uh, oppression, and we're we're not free, and so this is this is you know the, the government has been our enemy and and continues to be our enemy and uh, and uh, the police department and the the, the institution, institutions of uh, of justice system uh, is all there to keep us in line and to keep us from getting our our rights as uh, as free human beings, deserving of 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 the the fruits of our labor, and you know, and so reparations are in order, and uh, until that happens, you know, we are we are enemies of the state. It's as simple as that. Thank you, Shabari. Your take to the question. Reading this article, do you um? Give me your analysis on the rationalization that, based on our historical um, relationship, of how we arrived at the state and how we've been treated since since then. Um, do, you, do the states? You know, um, 
It's very interesting. We discussed this article when we look at Tuesday as usual. There'll be some type of commemoration for 9/11. And now since 9/11, we know they have been more deliberate in terms of coming up with terms to describe those who will be opposed to Western ideology based off of an ethnic description. And clearly this article is speaking to something that is not unusual because any time we were in conflict, there were always certain um, ethnic groups of people who weren't the uh, creators of Western supremacy that they were always target, and they would find some type of word to use to describe them. Basically, I like to call it the boogeyman phenomenon. So that's what we're looking at in terms of what this article is advocating because it's saying that what they're going to do is when they round up people of a particular ethnic description, they'll find some BS reason to justify it, but it won't be solely because of what they look like. They'll try to say that um, the times we're in justify this kind of uh, hysteria happening. We've got to understand that they have a very powerful tool at their disposal in terms of doing this when we look at what the media misreports, exaggerates, and the perspective that is given. Mm-hmm. Brother Haki, give us your thoughts on this question in relationship to this article. Yeah, well, I think some things we have to understand historically in terms of understanding why African people are implicitly a threat, uh, you know, to the system. Uh, one of the things we go back to the late 17th century, we talk about Thomas Jefferson as his empire of liberty. In other words, what he talked about was expanding expansion of more land. The sole purpose of ultimately creating a situation where you're in position to control the rest of the world's resources. Now, of course, in the context of African people's lives, if you're going to become wealthier, then the oppression of African people had to be assured that African people had to be perceived as enemies, not just Africans in America, but Africans on the continent of Africa. Uh, secondly, uh, the Monroe Doctrine in the late 18th century, middle 18th century, 1823, to be precise, uh, we, we call it the Manifest Destiny. And that's all about the idea that the U.S. had a right to uh, to control, the regional control of the new so-called new world. And this notion that because they had a right to control the regional part of the world, it means that they had the right to control any and everybody it perceived, you know, in their self-interest. In other words, if the oppression of people can ensure, you know, wealth, if it can ensure uh, um, the longevity of the state, then whatever you have to do to them is inconsequential because what's most important is control of the state and control of any and every, everybody. So clearly when we talk about African people in the context of America, even African people on the continent of Africa, that clearly this, this whole, the whole uh, phenomenon of control is very, very potent, uh, particularly when we look at the history of America and when we look in terms of the kind of travesty, the kind of injustice inflicted upon African people, it's a part and parcel of a, of a policy uh, that was created, and we know that as the manifest destiny. Early, and this is probably most importantly, um, Brother Africa, I think the Bush Doctrine, uh, we know that the Patriot Act. And this essentially was is, is, a, is a war on the world. Now, what does it mean by a war on the world? Essentially, it comes as three components to, to the so-called Patriot Act or the Bush Doctrine. It says that threats, threats, uh, any kind of threats against the acquired values uh, constitute uh, war. In other words, uh, when you look around the world, if you have a system, which says that human beings have a right to be free, if you have a system that people have a right to have jobs, right to be educated, that's fundamentally a challenge uh, to the powers that be in the West because their, their wealth is predicated on the oppression of African people. 
And so, therefore, in that context, African people are perceived as the enemy simply because Africans yearning to be free, to be liberated, is a threat to the system at large. And so this is important that we understand this. Secondly, um, to, the, to the extent that security exists in the, with, the, with the state, uh, if, in fact, those values are sacrificed, then the state has a right to go to war. In other words, if the U.S. government can't exploit you, if it can't, particularly if it can't exploit African people, then it, then it means that war is more as a, as a convenient avenue in terms of re- reestablishing control. So if that means you have to kill off African people, whether it be in America, whether it be on the continent, or whether it be anywhere in the world, then so be it, simply because the question in terms of their interests are sacrosanct and that the, the lives of African people, wherever they may be, is not important at all. And lastly, uh, I think that when we talk about um, – the, 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 the propensity for the, for the government uh, to maintain, you know, uh, its equilibrium or its physical territory. Uh, one of the things in terms of we talk about the, 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 the reach, international reach of America, in which a lot of these are considered territories, in which the United States says they are, in fact, part, in fact, part, of, in, in, in effect, part of the United States. Now, in a situation like that, if the position is that these people are part of the United States, then you do whatever you can to them in terms of making sure that they continue to serve your interests. Uh, again, when we talk about people who are rebelling to be free, people are fighting to be liberated, people who want the right to be fed, the right to education, the right to shelter, any kind of people who stand up and demand those kind of things become an explicit threat to the, to the powers that be in the West. And so, therefore, they have to be dealt with. And then, of course, when we look at the history in terms of African people in this society or African people on the continent, when we look at it, when every time we make these demands in terms of autonomy, then what happens is the Western nations, U.S. in particular, come down hard on us, which means that if they're not corrupting our leader, leadership, then they're, they're, they're funding groups like uh, Boko, or the, the, um, Boko Haram, uh, ISIS, uh, and these kind of groups, which they fund for the sole purpose of destabilizing and killing people you know, you know, you know, in, 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 in the African world. So clearly, um, when you ask the question, are uh, African people an implicit threat uh, to, the, to, the, to the state? We are, and there's no getting around it. No matter how we try to sugarcoat it, the bottom line is that we are an implicit threat to the powers that be, which explain, you know, the kind of, the kind of horrific conditions that we find ourselves confronted with in the society. You know, Brother Anthony, one of the issues that this article raised, and I'd like to get you to respond to it, and we need to be conscious in terms of this concept of how we use terminology, words, and what it means. In this case, mm-hmm. the, the operative word is national security. I think our people must have a, 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 a keen grasp on what do they mean when they say national security. What does that entail, and how does it relate to our interests? The article states that, Anthony, that when the Fred's, Invoke national security. All bets are off on how far they will go to suppressing the threat, including mass roundups. Now, the opposite words, national security. I mean, they're already doing different forms of roundups. It's just all a question how you want to um, conceive it. But when we say national security, Anthony, what entails that? And how do we fit in this scheme? And how this concept has been and will be continuing to be used against whatever response we take in this country 
given the fact that we are a oppressed sector within the geographical border? What national security means is the protection of the interests of the ruling class, which for the most part is European. Uh, so, uh, so it's, uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's nothing, but it's also in a particular sector of Europeans, that uh, sector that makes up uh, the U.S. bourgeoisie, uh, the ruling class, and uh, and uh, that 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 what that's what that term national security means. It means those interests of the ruling class of society. And right now, under this present government, that is the uh, that is the U.S. bourgeoisie. And uh, everything, all the instruments of government, are geared toward protecting that that interest, including the so-called uh, African elected officials. Their primary role is to protect the interests of that ruling class that financed their elections. That's why they so often work against our interests uh, most of the time, uh, because they're trying to protect the interests of that ruling class. And all the institutions that make up the society also geared toward protecting the ruling class. Or perpetuating it in the case of uh, colleges and universities, but uh, and the only way this is can overcome is that the working masses must get organized, and uh, we must understand the truth that uh, that uh, that 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 the so-called Constitution of the U.S. was not meant uh, for the masses of African people. It was only meant to apply to the European ruling class that colonized uh, this hemisphere. You know, Jabari, one of the things it talks about in the title, it says that racial and economic, racial and ethnic roundups are legal as long as race is not the only reason. It didn't say the primary reason or the sole reason, they said not the only reason. And in this article, it talks about any time they use this concept we just spoke of, national security, or this concept of saying that a threat, you know, combined with those things, they can always create a scenario where they commit people of color are justified to create large mass run-ups. We said earlier they have a history of doing this. They did it into the, to, to the Japanese. They did it to the indigenous people. And history tells us anything is once they're done before, they can't well, do it we again. Can also add, we can't miss 9-11 as well in terms of um, Arab citizens. They've done maybe not as big in mass, but there have been numerous instances where they were questioned just because of what they looked like because of the way the narrative was told. Okay. Um, so... How do we get around this? How do we get around well, this on. um this catch twenty two? Yes, but, um, Brother mind. Africa, let me also add this point. Notice the article does not say that it says as law is written now, 
that um, race can't be the only reason. But because of these emergency manager laws and the um, National Defense Authorization Act, which basically can establish um, emergency managers, that means that that could be completely undone permanently. Because remember, once those um, type of rules are put in play, whatever somebody says is law is the law, period, until there's another emergency manager situation. That's a good mm-hmm. point there. Good point. Brother Moses, you know what I'm response to this whole concept? Uh, this question of how they can use race, maybe not so, but maybe as primary, but they can use other justifications, whether they declare national security or a threat or whatever, to use it to round up large sums of people based upon that race or that religion. Just your general response on that, on, on the usage of these, these words and terms. While we wait for Brother Moses, Brother Haki, give me your idea on on on, the, on that particular thought. Yeah, well, the whole point in terms of national security is designed to be ambiguous. But here's the here's the thing that we understand that when we talk about interpretation of the U.S. Constitution and we talk about constitutionalists, they have a pretty clear definition in terms of what the Constitution represents. But then there's a subtext that exists which says that the, the United States of America is a white man's country. And so, therefore, particularly a rich white man, not poor white man, rich white man. So so to the extent that rich white men benefit, you know, from the resources of the country, then to the, to the extent that rich white men should exercise control over everybody else, they sort of validate their position um, in terms as being strict constitutionalists. And so when they talk about something like national security, all they're simply saying is that implicit in what they're saying is that, you know, white, rich white men got a right to do whatever they, they want to do if they feel threatened. If they feel threatened because you have a destiny to ask for, for housing or fair wages or shelter or quality education, any time they do that, it constitutes a threat to rich white men. And so, therefore, you, they have a right under national security to deal with you. And particularly when we talk about the masses of African people in society, and one thing, and we certainly can't dismiss this point, but when we talk about under the National Defense Organization Act, when you talk about the internment, you know, of you know, 12, 6, 12 to 16 million African people, uh, you know, as the economy deteriorates, then clearly the question in terms of national security is relevant to those those rich white people who are the power, because they understand that the kind of decline that we that we often we talk about in this program is very very real, and they understand that. And so despite all the, all the imaginations, all the trickery, all the games they play in terms of reviving the economy, no matter what they do, the economy continues to decline. And so therefore, they understand their longevity, their interest lies in the, in the internment or in placing in concentration camps large number of African people. Why African people? Well, number one, African people historically have been the conscience of America in terms of trying to get the system to realize, you know, that, that as human beings, that human beings should deserve certain kinds of, certain kinds of uh, avenues of expression. And that in particular when we talk about the right, you know, that's endowed by the creator, then clearly we, we understand that African people should not be immune from the rights that other people take for granted. But for the ruling class to, to honor those rights uh, to African people is tantamount to destruction of the economy. And they're not going to do that. Rather than to, rather than to do that, their position is that if we, if we incarcerate large groups of African people, we at least 
create, create the perception that we can survive that much longer. Of course, no matter how many African people they incarcerate or they intern, it doesn't matter if the system is going to eventually going to decline anyway. Society is rising and fall. America is no different than that. So this question in terms of national security is very ambiguous. It's whatever they want it to be, and that's what we have to understand. And for, in, in this particular article, when the Chief Justice Roberts talked about the fact that uh, when he talked about the case of Korematsu, he talked about the internment of 120,000 Japanese in America. When he talks about the fact that the mere fact that um, the president at that time utilized, President Roosevelt at that time utilized race as a determining fact in terms of interning those Japanese, he's saying that's wrong. But if they would exclude using, um, using ethnicity, then internment of the Japanese people would have been legal. So clearly there's a very minor distinction. Um, when we talk about African people, they don't have to say we're going to turn African people. They simply say we're going to turn black identity extremists or we're going to turn uh, black nationalists or we're going to turn uh, whoever. So clearly uh, it's, all, it's all semantics. The bottom line is that you know, national security is whatever they want it to be, and that's just the way it is. There's, there's no changing that. Excellent point, Brother Hacker. Just to re- reinforce your, your points you make, I read this 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 uh, paragraph from this particular article, and Brother Anthony, you respond first, then Brother uh, Moses, you can follow. And what Hockey just really just similar particularly, but for our listening audience who haven't seen the article, this is a point that Brother uh, the Brother raised on the jail four for Black Agenda Report. He stated that national security is the major term that legally sanctions concentration camps. As long as authorities are careful not to spare out race or religion of the intended inmates, such camps already exist in the U.S. and always have. American child slavery and its attendant legal structures treated all Africans descended people as inmates. Okay, then they talk about for the slave, the whole nation was a prison and every white person a god who was obligated to enforce the terms of confinement. Such is the logic of the fugitive slave laws. A Chief Justice Tony, Dred Scott decision that blacks had no right which the white man was bound to respect. Does that attitude still exist today, Brother Anthony? Yes, it does. And, uh, and it manifests itself and the and the um, high rate of incarceration of Africans, and also in the low regard of for African life held by uh, uh, by by by, people, by the military and law enforcement, regardless of the ethnicity of that uh, law enforcement officer, and. Um, and this is very important for people to understand. I think, uh, 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 in retrospect, nine uh, eleven was a setup in order to further implement and entrench these uh, security measures, and also, uh, and also to you know uh, erode what. You know what reforms uh, had given us certain, uh, you know, human rights that are now being eroded under uh, 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 in the name of national security. 
So I think, uh, you know, his statement is very accurate. And, uh, and, um, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and national security is designed to be vague because if, if it was explicit, then it would not test, uh, pass the test of uh, constitutionality. Brother Moses, would you like to respond to that as well? I think still waiting to give Brother Moses back. Brother, hello. Yes, Brother Moses. Yes, Brother Moses. Yeah, I think uh, I think this national security thing is a political issue, and uh, it's the interest of the ruling class and their capitalization and profit-driven corporate structure. if anything that threatens it is is called national security. Uh, even right now, Donald Trump is trying to get these whistleblowers that um, put out the op-ed in the New, New York Times. Uh, he's trying to say that's a national security issue. Anybody who disagrees with his interests is a national security threat. And you know, so it's a very subjective thing, and it's vague, and it's meant to be vague, and. Uh, in order to, to be a catch-off anytime um, the state needs to perpetuate itself, any opposition to it is, is a national security problem. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Brother Hacking, uh, this article makes some profound statements, and you can um, elaborate on them. It states that as a matter of national security, such a company requires racially uh, restrictive and repressive immigration. It needs pervasive police and intelligence presence in non-white, especially black communities. So maybe that's why they have police based in African communities and they don't be the white one. Also it talks about, it says, sex, sex countries must also be prepared to respond to civil disturbances among non-white populations and their perceived allies with mass detention centers to accommodate ethnic-based roundups as a matter of national security. I don't think you, you can say that any more clearly, Brother Haki. So this is why, you know, we ask the question, why you always see the popo in, in communities of color? Just uh, to um, just speak to that, Brother Haki, that phenomenon. Is this the reality? Is this point valid? Yeah, well, it's, it's very valid. It's very valid. And also, let me add this. I think it's important that people under, understand this point. Uh, one of the things when, under the Bush doctrine, when Bush decided that there's a war on terror, what he did was fundamentally change the way the society functions, which means that if the, if, if, if the country's at war, permanent war, it means that all the laws that historically govern a society are no longer in play, that the, that the leadership, uh, of the society determines what actually what what actually takes place in society. So to the extent that we talk about you know, organizations, uh, you know, in the United States, we got to look at the role of Trump's intelligence community and law enforcement as it relates to the African community. One of the things when we talk, we look at the kind of oppression, the brutality, the murdering of African people, and you often wonder, well, given this historical you know uh, problem, why is it that the here over the last fifteen 20 years, 
the federal government refuses to intervene when you have these obvious cases of you know murdering police murdering African people. Well, simply because we're a different we're a different point in history. So when we talk about the fact that the country's at permanent war, any type of uh, perceived disobedience, any type of uh, resistance is perceived as a threat to the state, and so the state has the obligation to crush it. And so this is what this is what happened. This is why the federal government won, and even under Barack Obama, they refused when they look at obvious cases of police abuse, brutality, and murder of African people. There's never a response, and the question is why. And a lot of that has to do with the fact, when you, as Brother Anthony alluded to, when you go back to um, 9-11, uh, one of the things in terms of, you know, what was so key in terms of changing everything operating in society was to create this, this overall notion that, in fact, that America was under attack. Of course, we don't understand that this whole 9-11 was a ruse. We understand the U.S. CIA carried that out in, with, with Israel. We know that. I mean, the history is very clear on that point. There's so much history on that, so I don't think anybody at this point is perceived in terms of the role of the U.S., along with his, 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 his uh, Armenian state, um, his Armenian regime, rather, carried, carried out the, uh, the 9-11. But the mere point that they did that and to paint the U.S. under attack, they can do pretty much everything they want to do. And so when we talk about the question in terms of national security, we got to understand that national security is, is not even presented in, the, in, a, in, a, in a restrictive kind of way. It's, it's presented in the broadest way possible. Any type of consent, any type, it doesn't matter what it is, it means that the, the, the state has to respond. And this is what I understand. So ultimately, you know, as, as people become more and more hopeless, then this kind of uh, uprising can be anticipated. And they and the, the intelligence community, law enforcement, expect, you know, that the incarceration or internment of between 12 and 16 million African people is the only way to ensure the system's longevity. So clearly, you know, uh, we understand that national security is just something that is powerful use in terms of maintaining power and maintaining control. So I think that pretty much answers your question. Well, brothers and sisters, we come to give you some information so you can use it as a tool for liberation, help liberate people and humanity. You need to understand how the enemy perceives you and how to use this kind of tools to oppress you. And the real reality, based upon history, as Brother Malcolm say, history best reward those who research. Now, Brother Anthony, uh, can you just speak to this 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 real interesting point? And one of the things I heard heard the enemy stated before that once you have created a program that has been successful, they will never abandon it. They will never give it up, even if they tell you they stop doing something. Whatever they have been doing, if it has been successful, whether they constitute it legal or illegal. You must always know they will never give it up. And I said this because when I read this article, Brother Anthony, I'd like to you just speak to it, elaborate on it. When it stated that the U.S. government has routinely invoked national security to justify racial, racialist, repressive policies that would otherwise be deemed unconstitutional, national security justified the FBI COINTELPRO program, legal assault on black militants and other activists in the late 60s and early 70s. Cortel Pro never ended. The national security rationale is a permanent counter to black militancy. So this whole question of Africans talking about we need to organize and fight for justice. It's automatic putting them in the camp as being a national security threat 
Brother Anthony, how are we going to deal with that? Um, we have to uh, take a lesson from um, from one of my mentors and my comrade, Kwame Ture. Organize, organize, organize. And I would say, I would add, educate and share our experiences in terms of our struggles to get our liberation. Uh, and uh, and in spite of uh, the media's lies and uh, lies of the educational system, we have to educate our people to the truth. And uh, and there's some, some some validity to the saying, the truth will set you free. Because you cannot form an adequate plan of action based on falsehood. You have to uh, uh, know who your real enemies are and who your friends are. And you have to study both, and you have to gain knowledge of self. That is why and that is why our culture has been repeatedly attacked over the centuries because that's how they keep us in uh, bondage mentally and physically but the mental aspect uh, you know is the primary one at this stage of uh, capitalism Brother Moses Based on that statement that we made, I, I read just now, yeah, put us in a box. We damn we do and we damn we don't. If you don't fight for your freedom and resistance, you're still going to be uh, incarcerated and be oppressed. If you do fight for your freedom, you still going to have to deal with the same reality. So what do we do, Brother Hackey? What do we do, Brother Moses? Yeah, well, my, you know, uh, Johnny... Let me finish this point for one second, Brother Hackey, then you come in. And remind me of a book we are advocating for our listeners to read called The Choice by Samuel Yeti. The European told us that there will come a time where we'll be faced with the dilemma of either African people fight to be free and be liberated, or you don't fight at all, you still get wiped out. But that would be the choice that you have, in so many words. And looking at the nature of the issue that has been raised in this article, it sounds like it's saying the same thing, but go ahead, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, you know, um, I think Samuel, that book was, was absolutely correct. Um, those are the choices. Uh, one thing is to understand that the people in positions of power have no intentions on, you know, uh, refining the system or reforming the system for that matter. And because they have no desire to do such, then the system goes on unabated. It goes on doing what it normally does. That is the maximum amount of control and, and power uh, that it has. So in a, in a, in a, in, to the extent that it can maximize the kind of power and control that it has, uh, is, it, it runs squarely against uh, aspirations and needs and desires of you know millions upon millions of people in society. Uh, now, if they're not going to change, then there's only one, one, one outcome as far as the, the power are concerned, that those people who, 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 who don't, who don't uh, who don't uh, fall, don't fall to, uh, who, 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 who don't bow down, then those individuals simply have to be dealt with. So therefore, uh, they'll be dealt with one way or the other. Uh, we're talking about national defense organization acts. So what they're saying, they're going to be dealt with the sense of you know mass incarceration. 
So clearly they see this as, as a viable strategy. Uh, and the question is, what can we do about this in terms of, you know, I'm not sure there's much we can do about that. And it's not to be, um, uh, fatal, you know, uh, fatalistic or anything like that. But it's simple to say that, you know, without organization, without understanding what's going on, the chances in terms of preventing, you know, these kind of atrocities from inflicting African people uh, becomes minimal. And so this is why organization becomes so extremely important. But we're getting to a point now where even organization becomes very, very difficult simply because in terms of communications, a lot of times we may have to depend on the adversaries' uh, technology in terms of getting the word out. So we have to format some type of way in terms of getting the word out without necessarily utilizing, you know, the, the adversaries' technology. Uh, but either way, the situation with African people is very, very precarious. And uh, I wish there was something I could say in terms of, you know, what could we do in terms of um, conceivably that would enable us, you know, to withstand, you know, any type of uh, brutal strategies employed, you know, by the by, by the powerful. You know, uh, you know, one of the things uh, people, you know, spend a known amount of time in terms of, you know, you know, the church. And unfortunately, the church doesn't prepare people for thinking about much broader, much more complex uh, issues that exist in society. And as, and as a consequence, a lot of our people are scapegoats, uh, you know, um, unwittingly uh, up to the powers that be without necessarily understanding, you know, that in fact that you're, that you're just, you know, you're just, it's just a, it's just a tool. And, uh, and, and to that extent, um, we have a situation where it's increasingly, you know, more and more people positions of power in the African community, as opposed to using their platform in terms of liberation of their people, uh, embracing the system. And so, therefore, that goes in, 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 in the process of embracing the system, it sort of legitimizes the system in the eyes of the rank and file who don't have necessarily the opportunity to figure out, you know, uh, the ins and outs of the system. So I say all that to say, Brother Africa, I'm not sure what we can do in terms of, you know, trying to um, – you know, trying to minimize you know, potential destruction coming our way uh, without organization. Without organization, there's, there's really nothing we can do. We keep talking about organization, and we keep trying to educate people about the, what's happening. But ultimately, it's up to people to understand what we're saying and to begin to move, organize, and to start talking to one another and create an organization for any, for any kind of eventuality that comes down the road. But aside from that, without organization, Brother Africa, I'm not sure there's much we can do. Brother Moses, your final thought on this article? Anything you'd like to add or say that hasn't been said before we move on? Well, um, definitely we need to get organized uh, and educated. Those two things are necessary um, because, you know, the the government is not going to give us anything. Anything we get, we're going to have to take, demand and take, and um, that's the bottom line. Um, I agree with what's been said so far. The church is the church is is it's good for morality and uh, um but in terms of the government, you know, we need a political organization. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, you are listening to Africa on the Move. I'm your host, Brother Africa. Uh we are talking about our theme tonight, we're addressing part two, This is America. We're Right now, speaking to a real interesting article, we will advocate for you to read from the Black Agenda Report, uh, published on June 28, 2018, titled, Racial and Ethnic Roundups Are Legal As Long As Race Is Not The Only Reason. So what we're going to do right now, we'll continue the discussion, but we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we're going to talk about 
the economic impact that's going down that will have an impact on your life today, tomorrow, and the future. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Bye. 
bet you we're going to fight against a Popeye by any form or any other name you want to call it. You can say a Popeye, you can say the capitalism. They all equate the same. It's still going on. We must eradicate any and all system that exploit may all mankind. So at this point in time, we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We did it with part two, This is America. What we would like to do right now is focus your attention on the article that, was, that comes from Home Business News, published on the 17th of August, 2018, entitled, Japan and China Slashing U.S. Foreign Debt is Washington's Worst Nightmare. It starts off with, the, with a statement where it states that last figures from the U.S. Treasury Department shows that Russia and Turkey are not the only countries to dump U.S. bonds, U.S. debt bonds, Washington's second biggest creditor, Japan, is also doing the same. Now, one of the things about U.S. Treasury bonds or debt bonds, what that does is allow U.S. to pay its bills. So, you got to understand, when more people begin to dump these bonds, it will create all kinds of economic hardship for this economy and the people who live in this economy, as well as it will have an impact on the rest of the world. Brother Haki, this is your specialist. Give us a, a, a general layman term. What's the significance of this article? What do people need to learn and take from this article? You know, earlier we talked about warfare, and I'll try to be brief, but earlier we talked about, uh, uh, you know, national security. Uh, one of the things behind the scene the U.S. has been doing, they've been creating a shortage of dollars throughout the world. They call it qualitative tightening. In other words, what happens is that the, the Federal Reserve refuses to buy, you know, uh, any securities from the Treasury, which means that it, it has a, a, a direct flow on the amount of dollars in circulation. So by not buying those treasuries, those, those, not buying those treasuries, by the Federal Reserve not buying those treasuries, it means there are fewer dollars in circulation, which means because there's no dollars in circulation, the value of the dollar, the interest, increases, which means that people around the world who hold those dollars uh, um, who pay their debt in dollars, meaning they have to pay more of their, 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 their wealth in terms of paying off their debt, which is creates some instability for these countries around the world. Now, keep in mind, there's a kind of residual impact that takes place. So if they, the idea is to attack first you know, China, uh, which impacts Russia, which impacts Turkey, which impacts Greece, which impacts African nations. So there's a residual effect that takes place when they do that. So behind the scenes, that's precisely what they're doing. But the same token, while they're doing that, it also creates a real deficit right here in America. As you alluded to earlier, uh, when selling those treasuries, it's a way in which it makes it possible for the U.S. to actually, actually, you know, get money it needs in terms of paying its bills. So if the U.S. can't borrow in terms to get money to pay its bills, then it causes the economy to contract, which means that the situation in terms of declining wages, no, no lack of employment for people, Poor schools or schools with those things without materials they need, uh, affordable housing, all that stuff, you know, become 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 more and more problematic. So clearly, uh, so what we're talking about. So when when Japan, the number two holder of a U.S. debt, when it decided to to, I think it was like a hundred and uh, eighteen eighteen point five billion dollars, I believe they uh, they, uh, they 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 took out of their out of their they they cashed in which means that it has a, a big impact in terms of the functioning of the U.S. economy. So even though the, the orange one don't want you to know that, the bottom line that the maneuvers that they are doing 
whereas true initially it's going to destabilize countries, inevitably countries like China, Russia, um, Turkey, uh, you know, Japan, um, you know, those countries that they are targeting, inevitably those countries are going to, uh, to adjust in terms of what's going on, which means that the U.S. consumer or U.S. people are going to be the, the, the ones who pay the price in terms of this kind of uh, uh, gamesmanship, you know, being played by the orange menace and, you know, of course, the, uh, Federal, uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, so that's essentially it's why it's important people understand that when we talk about the um, – well, actually, with China, Japan dumped 82.9 billion dollars of U.S. Treasuries. That's a significant amount of money. So today, Japan only has something like 1.3 trillion in U.S. Treasuries, uh, and uh, and of course, China removed even a bigger sum of money, which has a devastating impact on the U.S. economy, its ability to to, to borrow money. So clearly, uh, we understand that this game is being played, but it's one in which the people in the United States are going to lose. But we have to understand that in losing, that we got to be prepared for whatever comes down the road, because what's going to happen? Um, by virtue of their own policy, they're going to create a lot of enemies, enemies in which the U.S. powerful, those missions of power, feel they have to deal with. Uh, Keith, you was going down the road where I was going now, and I addressed this to Brother Anthony. It seemed to me, Anthony, as the beginning, as country began to call in and and, and and dissolve their U.S. Treasury debts and bonds and call them in, it seems to me that it can create more of a desperation for the U.S. government to create more walls so they can go around the world and try to take other people's resources as a result of not having the resources they had earlier to allow them to function. Um, can you expect more of that kind of behavior as a result of this, Brother Anthony? Yes. Half, uh, 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 definitely so. And the thing about it, though, and as Haki alluded to, uh, it is the masses inside the U.S. that are going to suffer behind that. And uh, as it is, it seems like the only the only area in which um, in which the U.S. is expanding is in terms of um, weapons manufacture and prisons. Uh, those seem to be only the areas going, and of course, uh, media. Because uh, propaganda is always uh, offensive, is always important in a in a crisis like this uh, to mislead people that this crisis is not going on, but it is. And uh, the extent that it can continue to confuse and deceive people is gonna is gonna decrease. But uh, in the meantime, things are gonna get worse. Uh, because what is happening is the fact um, is that there's a shift, and uh, this is characteristic of capitalism, so it shouldn't surprise people who follow the history of capitalism. There's a shift in power, and uh, and uh, you know the um, ruling class is going to fall eventually. Uh, whenever the ruling class of an empire falls, it has devastating consequences for the people. So we got to get prepared for that as well, and we're gonna bet better brunt. But the but the thing is, uh, uh, you know, to uh, you know, the solution is to put an end to imperialism. 
and that that could only come about through the achievement of Pan-Africanism. And uh, we have worth of that because Africa is our home base and our only just homeland. And it's where, uh, you know, uh, the bulk of, uh, you know, the resources needed by imperialism to survive come from, and it's where and it's where we're from ultimately, regardless of where we live in the diaspora, what language we speak. We have to find a way to achieve Pan-Africanism. And Brother Moses, when you read this article, Brother Moses. The one of the things uh, I was, that one of the things that came to my attention is America will not be able to continue to pay these checks that everybody depend upon, and nor will a lot of these businesses. So these checks are coming, brother Moses. What the people gonna do here? Well, we see already that that Trump is saying he's not gonna give a uh, uh, increase to the government workers. Uh, you know, they won't get a pay raise and not even to keep up with inflation or whatever. Uh, so, you know, the, the always the ruling class tries to shift the crisis onto the backs of the working class, and, and that's, you know, that's what's happening uh, as this crisis deepens and as the, you know, the, the economy, you know, uh, worsens. Uh, Right now, Trump is claiming that you know it's the, the best economy in the in the history of the U.S. or something, but 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 it's not true, and um, and you know the, the propaganda can only last so long before reality really breaks through in the minds of the people, and uh, so you know we we uh, we we have to be. Uh, Vigilant and and stay educated on what's really going on, and know know that capitalism is doomed, and that we have to be organized in order to to, uh, to replace it. Thank you. Thank you, Panda Jai. We are done. We are come to the end of this road for the day. I have back each one, of y'all. Just give us your final thoughts for tonight. Tonight's thing was part two on This Is America. And one of the things I got to say, though, before we leave out here tonight is that America got America's running the, the biggest and probably the best con game in the world. And that con game is this, the game of illusion. This, 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 this whole question of money, the illusionary money, as it really having some kind of value. When, when reality has none, it's all what you have brought into the hype. It reminds me of a monopoly. We're dealing with monopoly money. But anyway, on that note, panelists, Give me your final thoughts for the night. Brother Moses, talk to the people. What's your final thoughts for the night? Well, I think you put it right. It's a con game. And con game means it's a confidence game. Uh, to, to gain the confidence of the people and, uh, and you know, manipulate them accordingly. We have to see through the illusions and get down to, to uh, clarity and, uh, and reality and... Uh, and uh, and arm ourselves with knowledge. It's, it's arm ourselves or arm ourselves, and so we we have to get educated and organized. And uh, that's the only answer. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contributions to today's program. Father, Brother Moses, Brother Anthony, give us your final thoughts for the night. 
Yes. Um, I I concur with uh, Brother Moses. We have to get organized and educated, and uh, we have to learn the truth and spread that truth among our people by any and all means at our disposal. And Brother Anthony, where can they find out more information about your organization? Okay, uh, they can visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. And they can find out with the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. And on our website, you can learn about our program, history, and objectives. Thank you, too, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Haki, give the people your final thoughts for today's program. Yeah, a couple of things. First, African Women Association, we're doing a Black History Educational and Cultural Tour to Cuba. We're going to Matanza, Trinidad, and Havana. This takes place December 27 to January 3, 2019. For more information, please call us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435. Or visit our website at wwwaaa cubatourscom Dot com. And my final word is, as always, I encourage everyone, you know, to unravel the matrix. And you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki. Thank all our panelists. Thank all our listening audience and our supporters. We'd like to remind you that what's coming up, it will be next. Okay. Our, our final song for tonight is Contribute to Mother Africa, Mama Africa. Then it will be followed by a presentation with Brother Kwame Turei. We're going to talk about the conscious versus the unconscious. That's coming up in the next minute or so. But we want to remind you that, remember, this program is a weekly program. You can hear us every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. Please share this information with your network. Don't do nothing else at the bare minimum. If you love your people, then you must join an organization. Only a organized people can organize themselves to be free. So until next time, this is Africa on the Move. And remember, let's scribe to go forward ever backwards novel. We now will take you to Mama Africa, which will then be followed by lessons from Brother Kwame to Ray on the conscious versus the unconscious. This is something that you need to hear. Thank you.
this brother, and he's still blazing a trail, even to them. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Kwame Ture, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the Slave Theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the firing line, who shook up America in 1966 when he hollered, Black Power! 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 Black Power, 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 Black Power. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, Brother Kwame Ture, let's give it up, Brother Kwame Ture. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. 
And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who was uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom, and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who act on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality and this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism it even had to bring in the American army very costly but since it was on instinct it had no reason nothing to direct it it would spin itself out those who participated in it were largely unconscious we must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious? when we consciously organized to rebel in Los Angeles with reason, I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland, nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious but involved in struggle. 
The conscience must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization. Something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist Association, a convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teachers unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads for reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, 
we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <clears throat> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. 
Now, what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be all of us so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say just to run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. And certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, 
their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news. Those who's running for president can <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody has played but them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they are incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there on a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew it was a little girl. I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. 
I said, what does it mean? He said, I don't know, I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, a young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa, and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibilities to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This United Front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, 
the All African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a united front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? Vernon Jordan, the one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry. Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Height, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something and the enemy will knock it down. And you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life, really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him. Uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and... When I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Kunstler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me. But I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All-African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. 
Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm blessed to let you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, 1982, I, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the Nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend, but the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming, and you know, he's sentimental minister can quote Bibles so he can sit down with preachers and all these others etc so after observing his movements uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front of course it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking I hadn't seen him in some time and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his force had been coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Mohammed Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Mohammed Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. <laughs> Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. By 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? It was 1984. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan. Our party people were in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats. 
you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know, you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all, that even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know, he's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, you old people, so before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't buy this town for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded Honorable uh, Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil is out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a, dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience, so... He said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them, really. I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, 
Usually everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me. From the 60s. You would look and you would see them. So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism and chauvinism. Look at them. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964 in Mohammed Speaks. In Mohammed Speaks. Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. <laughs> so what I'm worried about is when they spoil the union and it splits, you understand, which side of the fence you going to be on? Because I know Jesse going to be with the Zionists. Because that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, I knew with the thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja Jex uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet with me? I said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting. He'll meet with you. I arranged a meeting. Uh, Johnny Jacobs... Uh, office here in New York, in Manhattan. The first time they met each other, I just sat in the background, talk, talk, talk. So well did our meeting go that Minister Louis Farrakhan and Johnny Jacobs signed a letter that day issuing a call for a united front among the political organizations in this country. We have it in our files. When the time comes, we will demonstrate this. The Urban League has a copy. Farrakhan has a copy. And Major Thatcher, Thatcher, Hatcher, Hatcher, <laughs> Hatcher from Gary has a copy because at that time he was head of the mayors and we were working with him, of course. Uh, of course, I went back to Africa. It didn't take me long before I heard all this nonsense about gutter religion, Judaism, gutter, or dirty religion, or whatever, whatever, and uh, Jesse having to uh, split from Farrakhan, and you know what happened. Of course, I knew it would happen. But when we were with uh, Jacobs, Minister Farrakhan and myself, one of the things we agreed upon was that we must have the phone numbers of each other. They didn't even have each other's phone numbers. And we must have the house phone numbers. 
So that when we hear something on the radio that Farrakhan said this about Jacobs, before Jacobs attacks Farrakhan, Jacob will call Farrakhan and see if what the paper says is true. We agreed to this. We did agree to this. Of course, this was not written in the letter. This was a verbal commitment. But we're brothers. We can't lie. And I'm a revolutionary. I can't lie to you. Of course, when Jesse Jackson uh, made his split and the Zionists once again, with a nice plot, did everything. Johnny Jacobs, without calling Minister Farrakhan to see if in fact he made the statement, what was the content in which the statement was made, wrote public articles condemning Minister Louis Farrakhan. Once again, Zionism had come to block and destroy the unity of the African community. We are not stopping. And the Million and More March puts us properly in a position to create a united front in this country of the political organizations, given some semblance of unity and creating some atmosphere of unity where we can come to organize our people. I must tell you, the major enemy to our unity is Zionism. I tell you this as a result of over 30 years of constant struggle to organize and unify our people. I know them every step of the way. They are the slimiest slime that imperialism has ever produced. They will do everything to keep us divided. Want to run our own concepts for us, teach us. They fight to teach our children. Isn't that nice of them? Quite liberal. Quite liberal. Their job is to keep us enslaved. Their job is to control us. So that while controlling us, American imperialism and the right wing and the racist wing will be venting all their rage on us and on nobody else. But uh, we who are determined <laughs> see victory even in death. <laughs> We are going to have a united front. Our party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, has decided to direct its attention for the next three years into two major areas. In the 1960s, when COINTELPRO broke down and destroyed many organizations, and they did, they also destroyed coordination between organizations. Thus today, there is no coordination between organizations. And people come to think that the struggle in America is not like it was in the 60s. Why, America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. The people are more politically conscious. The conditions are worse. When you have falling conditions and rising consciousness, you've got to have an explosion. You've got to have it. Either it will be instinct which will be revolt, or either be reasoned and organized, which will be revolution. But you can be sure you're going to have an explosion. We say that people's consciousness are rising more and more. Even movements that we never thought about in the 60s, like the women's movement, the ecology movement, they are spreading everywhere. The right wing in this country has made a proper shift. It no longer sees minorities as their major enemy, nor the left wing. It sees the U.S. government as their major enemy. 
America is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. Africans have a particular responsibility here to the struggles of their people and to their future generations in directing this struggle to be nothing other than a revolutionary struggle. I mean this in every sense of the word. If you look throughout history, as a matter of fact, uh, two days ago I was in Ohio and a journalist asked me, what do you think is the greatest contribution that the Africans have made to America? I said, help to civilize it. It's a fact. It's a fact. I know who I am. I know I'm equal to everybody else. They don't know it. They're the ones who have to be taught it, not me. Not me. So consequently, our job is to civilize America. If you look, this is exactly what we've been doing. Everywhere you see struggles for justice, you will see Africans out front, the first to die every time, in every battle. I mean, even go back to the American Revolution, Christmas Adams. Well, first to die, instead of fighting with the Indians and joining up with the Indians of whooping George Washington. That's what he should have done. And that's why we must rectify the error today. Of course. Chinese say if you make an error, you know it's an error. You don't correct the error, you've made your second error. We have to correct that error. We're always on the front lines. Look at the history of the labor movement. Africans everywhere on the front lines. Look at the peace movement. They try to make it look like a white movement, but I know it was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that gave the slogan, hell no, we won't go, and broke the draft in this country. And I know it was Martin Luther King who was the center of the peace movement in the anti-Vietnam War in this country. Once again, Africans up front in the fight for justice. Anywhere you look, you will see us up front. We're unconsciously up front. It is time for us to become consciously up front. This then is the task that we come to put before you, your responsibility. Every time we come here, we tell you this is our problem, this is our responsibility here. The capitalist system has but one job through its media, make the Africans irresponsible. Make them frivolous. Make them hate themselves. Make them have low esteem of themselves. Just in one word, keep them demobilized and ineffective and tools for us when we need to exploit them and to turn them against their own people. This is their plan. We have to counteract this. We have to counteract this. And the television does it 24 hours a day, nonstop. We who say we are conscious cannot speak of being tired. As a matter of fact, even as a young boy, I remember sometimes seeing my father. You know, it's true, they don't make men the way they used to make them because I'll never be the man he was. <laughs> I'll never do what he did. I can't even try. <laughs> but I would see my father coming very, very tired from working, and I'd say to him, why don't you rest? He says, when I die, I will have enough time to rest. Uh, so from him, I've learned that. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. Yeah, because I can't rest now. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. 
I know if I can't rest now, I know I'm going to rest. <laughs> and I'm not like Martin Luther King. He sang free at last. I'm going to sing, I'm so glad I laid this burden down. <laughs> but until I lay it down, I ain't going to make one squeak about it. I'm going to carry it with my head up, just like my grandmother carried her head up on plantations. Your job as the conscious is to make our unconscious conscious of their unconscious movements. This can only be done in organization. This can only be done in organization. We repeat it over and over again. Every time you see an intelligent man, intelligent woman, they don't attack the enemy unless they have some force behind them. I sometimes look at our brothers who go to jail. By themselves, they think they're going to go to jail and take on the enemy. Me? I've been to jail many, many times in my life, all over the world. And every time I've been to jail, all I do is get one message out to one member, any member of my organization, and my task is finished. My job is finished. My organization knows I'm in jail. Either I get out, they find to get me out, they can't get me out, I'm organizing in jail. But I ain't got to worry about no courts, no judges, no lawyers. The organization going to do that. That's why you need organization. The police arrest me tonight. By the morning, I'm walking out of jail, and the police going to be in trouble. Yeah, because they're going to find, they're going to find, they're going to find. Look here. Why don't you show you a little tactic? When America bombed Libya in 1986, a member of our Central Committee, then by the name of Bob Brown, we sent him quickly to Libya to see what was happening. He got an American passport. Now, if you got an American passport, you got the right to enter any European country and stay there for three months without a visa. You understand that? Now, these little Swiss people, because we had pictures of Gaddafi we wanted to show. We wanted to make sure we are in harmony with the work they were doing. So he had Gaddafi's pictures in his uh, briefcase. They stopped him, deported him, sent him back to France without even giving him a chance to make a telephone call. Could you imagine how crazy we were? We didn't know where the brother was. You understand? When he explained to us what happened, we had to teach the Swiss a lesson. So he gets a little lesson, no big problem. They arrested him on a Wednesday, on a Tuesday evening, deported him all that, and Wednesday, we got the news. Wednesday evening, we made a plan. On Thursday morning, we want everyone in the party to call comrades and allies and every friend they know and have them call the Swiss embassy non-stop ask them one question why did you arrest Bob Brown that's all the Swiss embassy did no work that Thursday none whatsoever at all and the act is a legal act quite legal we did it Thursday and Friday and then on Saturday we sent them a telegram anytime you see an African anywhere in the world coming to Switzerland and he has legal papers don't mess with him he might be Bob Brown, who represents Africans who've had clashes with American capitalism in over 267 cities. We're sure the Swiss don't want any of this action. Very simple. But he's got an organization. He didn't have to make one phone call. And when anybody else goes through Switzerland, they don't mess with us at all. And we told him, this is just the first level. You mess with us again, we take it to a higher level. And you mess with us again, we take it to a higher level. And we can do it because we got organization. 
the conscious no organization. Malcolm X was a conscious brother. Before, when he was an unconscious brother, he wasn't a member of any organization. He didn't care about no organization. But Malcolm X was ready to throw a brick against the police, just like any conscious brother. He was unconscious. When Malcolm became conscious, he became a member of the Nation of Islam. And when Malcolm left the Nation of Islam, Malcolm, knowing the necessity of organizations, created two organizations, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated and the Organization of African American Unity. Malcolm X knew the necessity of organization. Our people have only one stage left in their struggle, and that is mass organization. It's the only stage left. We, uh, of course, you know, you learn in many, many different ways. And one of the slowest ways of learning is one known as method of elimination. Method of elimination means you try that, it didn't work. You try that, it didn't work. You try that, it didn't work. While it's the slowest way of learning, it's the shortest. And we have tried everything except mass organization. The Fifth Pan-African Congress, held in 1945, called on Africans all over the world to have mass movements. You know Africa as she's held in racism today all over the world, even Africans do not know the contributions which Africa has made to world civilization in the past or which she continues to make in the present. One of Africa's great contributions to world revolutionary movements is the mass party. We have a mass character to our struggle. In 1945, at the Fifth Pan-African Congress, the delegates there issued a resolution. They said, we are in the final confrontation with colonialism and racism. We call for mass parties to be set up in Africa, throughout the Caribbean, and mass movement in England and in the United States. Do you know that by 19, now this meeting was held in 1945, by 1952 Supreme Court decision was ready, and by 1956 Martin Luther King had hit Montgomery with a mass movement. If you look throughout Africa, the length and breadth of Africa, the independent struggle was nothing less than a mass struggle. In the Caribbean, mass struggle. In Britain, when we rise up there, mass struggle. And in America, unconscious as we are, at least we know we only rise up when the masses are instinctively ready. Mass struggle everywhere. Therefore, we already have the character of mass struggle. Our task is to take this character and make it permanent into mass organization. We are going to organize the masses of our people. I want you to know that. I want you to know that in spite of yourself, you're going to organize the masses of your people. Because your culture is so strong that in spite of you, it will defeat American imperialist culture. I'll give you one simple example. Imperialism, seeing this mass character of the African movement in the 1960s, had to do everything possible in the 1970s to go quickly to an individualism. Me thing, my thing, I, I, me, me, my, my, individual. They made a whole lot of propaganda about it. And of course, they had to have the art reflect this. Therefore, they were serious. They didn't play. They broke up the Beatles. They broke up the Supremes. They broke up the Jackson Fives. They broke up everybody. You could be, there could be three Jacksons but they couldn't be three Jackson brothers. They had to be each of them their own superstar, individual by themselves. 
This was to reflect this individual culture so that it would see, oh yeah, everybody's superstar, so this communal thing ain't going. I guess we all got to be superstars and everybody trying to be a superstar. The they don't play now. They don't play. But African culture, dig this. has already broken down this individual garbage, even though the artists who are doing it were unconscious of it. Certainly, while rap has given us a lot of conscious artists, it has produced a lot of rubbish, too. This is a fact. This is a fact. And even they who had this rubbish, while they were showing rubbish, they were showing communal activity. They were showing communal groups. It was no longer the one, and they were showing once again Africa, call and response, call and response. That's which they tried to destroy in our culture. So there's victory for us now. I want you to know we're going to win in spite of ourselves. We are going to organize in spite of ourselves. The Honorable Marcus Garvey said, organize your people. Organize your people. Organize your people. Organize your people. If you don't organize them, conditions will organize them. And the conditions are here. We must be one step ahead of it. We come again to speak of organization. That's the only task we have before us. Our party's going to heighten its task for United Fronts, but we ask you, the United African Movement, to heighten your task. We must take lessons here from people. Martin Luther King was a great man, taught me a lot. But one of the greatest things Martin Luther King taught me was humility and using the nonviolent spirit within the African community. Martin Luther King was a living example of this. He was attacked by the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. He was attacked by Malcolm X. He was attacked by Minister Louis Farrakhan. He was attacked by Roy Wilkins. He was attacked by Whitney Young. He was attacked by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I myself attacked him. But Dr. King never attacked any of us. Never. Never. Malcolm X recognized this era. When he came back to form the Organization of African American Unity, he said, I've said a lot of mean and evil things about a lot of people. I hope they can forgive me. I made an error. I want us to work in a spirit of unity and harmony, and we must do this. The masses have demonstrated to us by the million or more march that they want unity. That's the message they sent. This is the message the unconscious sends to the conscious, and they do this unconsciously. Therefore, we have a responsibility to do this. The United African Movement must come and make serious moves to bring a united front of all the political organizations fighting for the people in New York City. All that is stopping us from undertaking this task is will and determination. The task is not an easy task, but we're revolutionaries. We don't look for easy struggle. I mean, who looks for an easy struggle? Somebody who don't want to struggle. Somebody don't want to struggle, look for eager struggle. You want to struggle, give me the most difficult. That's what we did in SNCC. Y'all want to struggle? Yeah. Well, take Georgia, Mississippi, that's the worst one. We want struggle, that's where we're going. We want struggle. We want the most difficult struggle. The United African Movement has a responsibility to do this. 
It has conscious elements. It has a constant base, a secured base, independent base. There's no reason why it should not be the leader in calling for this, going to meetings, preaching, and begging people to come to unify with each other. The All-African People's Revolutionary Party will never tire in this task. We've already drawn up our plans for our second, our next attack for the United Front. Meetings are already being scheduled for me with different people whom we have to see, who we feel can play key postures in bringing about this United Front. But the conscious must learn one thing. Sometimes the conscious have on their own to try and decide what is the movement of the unconscious? What are their aspirations? But when the unconscious speak and tell you, it is your responsibility to implement it. When the conscious, the unconscious tell us, with a million and more people, that they want unity, then the conscious has a responsibility to implement unity. If they do not, they should be charged with negligence and should be shot in the morning for betraying their people. Some people think traitors are those who do something against the movement. You can betray the movement by not doing something for the movement. This must be properly understood. Of course, you know we say it all the time because of the truth. We in the African Revolution are so weak. I mean, we really are weak. We are the only revolution, the only movement that allow traitors to strut in our communities with impunity. It is a level of weakness. The one that pains me the most, especially one who's always on the front lines, is that we have to leave our wounded on the battlefield to be picked by vultures. We have prisoners of wars in prisons in America all over, and we cannot even support their families, and they're in jail for us. These are facts. These are facts. If we care about building a movement, we come to address the movement seriously. Seriously. The other day I had to write Brother Sudiata Okoli a letter. I was ashamed. I was ashamed. We haven't even done anything for his family. Any liberation movement, you're a fighter, you get wounded, the first thing the liberation movement do is come to support the family. This is how weak we are. But we ain't going to be weak always. And the faster we work to get strength, the quicker we will arrive at strength. I say sometimes we have to try and figure out what the unconscious wants. But once the unconscious tells you, then you have a responsibility to do it. And if you don't do it, you've betrayed the movement. All that the Million and More March has told me is that they want unity. Hitler said, tell the truth, a tell a lie a million times, and the people will come to think it's the truth. Revolutionaries say, tell the truth a couple of times, you will smash a million lies. And that's exactly what the million and more march did. That's exactly what it did. If you would look at the lies of the capitalist media, you would think all we're concerned about is drug addicts shooting each other, crime, raping each other, ripping off each other, and concerned about each other, insecurity. October 16th, one day put all those lies in the garbage can forever. Do not think that capitalism takes defeat laying down. They're going to climb back out of the garbage can. They're going to wash themselves off 
give themselves another scent and odor and infiltrate in another area of the movement. Do not think that capitalism, when they saw the million or more march, just sat down like the rest of them and said, oh, it was a nice march. They said, this is serious out here. They said, we cannot play with this. That's precisely what they said. And on October 15th, they started heightening up their organization. What have we done? We must heighten our organizations. It is only in unity that we will defeat the enemy, and the enemy will be defeated, therefore we will be unified. Kwame Nkrumah precisely said, unity presupposes organization. You know, many brothers and sisters think they're in unity with the people and they don't belong to no organization at all. All the time. Oh, I'm, 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 what organization do you belong to? I belong to no organization, but I'm in unity with the brothers and sisters. Unity presupposes organization. If you're not an organization, you're not united with your brothers and sisters. If anything happens to me tonight, I call a brother or sister in my party in New York. You understand? If things get rough, we call each other. We decide what spot we're going to get together and go down together at least. But if you're in unity with the people and you don't know who to call, who to turn to, you understand, what is that unity other than an illusion? Brothers and sisters, we're about to conclude. Our task again is to drive you to organization. As a young man, I, come to as a young man, I came to understand the necessity of organization. Malcolm X helped me to see it greatly. When Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam, there was great competition between young groups to pull him. The RAM, the Revolutionary Action Movement, then headed up by a brother known as Max Stanford, now known as Ahmed Mohammed, was fighting to get him. The Student Online Corner Committee was fighting to get him. But Malcolm was assassinated when he was in between organizations, building organizations. I saw that quickly. I said, oh, so they killed him before he got his organizations off the ground. If Malcolm had gotten his organizations off the ground, they couldn't touch him that easily because Malcolm was not a mobilizer, he was an organizer. And so is life that even when they assassinated Malcolm, who was the organizer, because he didn't have organizations in place and there were so many contradictions in our community that a unified response was not possible, when King the Mobilizer was killed, the unified response was possible. History plays itself out, even if the leaders play themselves out. History will not be denied. I say we will be organized. History cannot be denied. You can either be part of the historical process, come to take the serious task of organizing your people on a day-to-day -day basis, or you can come to the slave every Wednesday night, clap, feel good, jump up, say with there, and go back and wait till uh, next Tuesday night. <laughs> it's Tuesday night next week, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We must become examples for our people. When they see us organizing, they get organized. Our people are looking for direction. Our people are looking for direction, and the conscious must provide that direction. 
and the direction the conscious must provide is to make the unconscious conscious of their unconscious behavior. So no master plan is necessary here, none whatsoever. The people are looking for unity, let's give them unity in united fronts. The people are looking for power, let's give them organization. The masses want unity, let's move from mass mobilization to mass organization. We have the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, always honored to come amongst you of the United African Movement. When we come amongst you, we can talk about things that we can't talk.